Welcome to the Factory Youth Podcast. This is a weekly teaching podcast from the Factory Youth at Calvary Chapel, Vera Beach. My wife, Julianne, she is a huge fan of kind of the dying genre of movies, uh, which is romantic comedies. Any romantic comedy fans in the building? Have you noticed that they don't really come out anymore? There was like 2000. I don't know, probably 2004 to like 2012, that it was just like one after another after another. You know the ones too, like um, uh, like Crazy Stupid Love, or there's one, or like, oh, what's that one? Like Love Actually or something like that, where there's like all these characters that are falling in love separately, and then they kind of all come together at some Christmas party or something at the end of the movie. It's a real beautiful, beautiful thing. But there's a, there's a lot of, like, famous romantic comedies, and we all love, and, and I'm saying all confidently, because even if you don't like it, you love it. You know what I mean? We love watching people in movies fall in love. We love romantic comedies. We love the romance of it all. Uh, I have recently been, like, super into The Hunger Games. Like, yeah. yeah. I did not expect that. And one of the strangest things about the Hunger Games is the fact that there's this love triangle happening in the middle of the arena where everybody's killing each other. There's like love, and then she's thinking about Gail and Peta, and then later there's like this revolution against the government, and like the whole world is kind of coming to a close, and then Gail is like, do you really still have feelings for Peta? Was that acting or not? I'm like, this feels like the wrong context for a love story. But we love love stories, don't we? The funny thing about the love story movies is that they, they all tell the story of the people meeting, and the credits usually follow the big kiss. It's only really telling the story of the people falling in love Because nobody really cares to watch just a regular old couple live their life and argue and whatever it is that you do after you start dating. Like, get jealous or whatever. Like, nobody wants to watch a movie like, I can't believe you like that person's Instagram. Like, that's the worst movie ever. (laughs) The the, the movie usually ends after, after the big kissing scene. I mentioned that to my wife, Julianne. She goes, no, not the notebook. The notebook is about older people. And I'm like, yeah, but he's retelling the story of them falling in love. He didn't pick a story of their normal life and their 50 years married. Sorry, I'm not going to call on you. Um, it's, it's up until the big kiss. As we read the scriptures, we are kind of trained to, to expect an ending once the big kissing scene happens. Now, pardon me if that's a bit weird, to, to call what I'm about to call the big kissing scene, the big kissing scene. So forgive me, I know it's a little weird. But last week we looked at Jesus, 
who is God in flesh, who is the sent one from the Father, who lived a perfect life. He he preached, he told of the coming of the kingdom of God and, and his death and his resurrection. He fulfilled the work of God of redeeming humanity back to himself. In the beginning, God created humanity and commissioned them to rule and reign over the earth, but humanity couldn't handle it. Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit. Sin enters into the story. And because of sin, there is separation between God and man. So God has this plan of redemption that would go through all of the scriptures up until Jesus, who is the sent one, who comes down, is the lamb that is slain on the behalf of us, who who rights our wrongs, forgives our sins, and gives us access back into relationship with God. And as Jesus is hanging upon the cross, he, he breathes out his final words. He says, it is finished. That the work of redemption, humanity now has access back into relationship with God through faith in Jesus. It's the big kissing scene. Humanity and God, we have been united together again because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Now when we believe in Jesus, Jesus would say we are born again. Paul would use the language we become a new creation. Now Jesus has a plan to to have a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, but just like the story of creation the first time, the unseen was created before the seen. If you remember back into the beginning of of our series, we talked that God created the heavens and the earth, the unseen and then the seen. And just like the first creation, the new creation happens unseen and then the seen. We become a new creation in Christ when we believe. We become a new creation. We have been redeemed back to God. However, unlike romantic comedies, the credits don't roll yet. There's more to the story than the big kiss. There is more than God redeeming us back into relationship with him. The story continues. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. If you're in there in your Bible, say I'm there. there. Who's in the Bible app? Yeah? Nate taught me how to do it. On the events thing. Oh, yeah. I did it myself. Yeah, thanks. Uh, um, So Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be. It's the beginning of the book, so there's a little bit of an introduction. It says like this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Everyone say Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. 
Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates of the Father. Has, uh, he has sent by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before them, uh, before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them, him from their sight. Jesus, we, we approach you one more time, Lord, just asking that, that your spirit would pour out. Bless us now as we focus to your word. Lord, would your word come alive to us? Lord, we believe what the author of Hebrews wrote, that your word is living and breathing and sharpening, sharper than any two-edged sword. So Lord, would you pierce our hearts tonight with your word? Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So after the death and resurrection of Jesus, so Jesus dies on the cross and the story's not over, Three days later, he comes back to life. And for 40 days, we're told, Jesus went around alive, uh, appearing to his disciples and giving a message that the Holy Spirit is speaking to his people. And we're told on one occasion, he's sitting around a table with his disciples and he commands them this, to, to stay where they are before they do anything and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Tonight we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. Tonight we're going to be focusing in on the third person of the Godhead. Boom, I just said it. So before we get into it, can we talk about some stuff that's a little confusing? Yes. Okay? It's, it's a little like, what? But it's going to be fun. Are you down to have fun tonight? It's fun to learn. A little bit, okay? It's fun to think. It's fun for, to let your imagination go wild. So, the Holy Spirit. Straight away, the, the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. That's my message title tonight. God's empowering presence. And before we get into who the Holy Spirit is, let's start with who the Holy Spirit is not. The Holy Spirit is not some sort of force, some sort of like, like power. Like it's not the, the, what God controls in order to be powerful, okay? The, the Holy Spirit is not made of like midichlorians, which is a Star Wars reference. And Jesus was not conceived by midichlorians, like Anakin Skywalker was. The, the Holy Spirit is, is the third person of the Godhead, one equal member within the Trinity that is God. God is three persons, three distinct persons, but he is one God. This is one of the things about God that we cannot fully understand. However, we can uncover some truth about it that is really helpful for us as we read the scriptures and as we encounter God. So the, the, the three members of the Trinity are, does anybody know the three members of the Trinity? 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Great job. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are co-eternal, co-equal in power, authority, and majesty, but they are distinct in roles. Okay, I'm going to say that again. They are co-eternal. They are co-equal in power, authority, and majesty, and they are distinct in Roles. Let's talk about them being co-eternal. Jesus was not created by the Father. Jesus was not created in his incarnation. Okay? His incarnation is when, he, when God put on flesh and Jesus was on the earth. But in the scriptures, Paul writes in the book of Colossians that Jesus was actually the one who created all things because Jesus is God co-eternal. And the Holy Spirit was not created by God when, we're going to get to it in a moment, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the earth. We're told in Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the very first sentence of Scripture, we see that the Holy Spirit is present. God, Father, Son, and Spirit co-eternal from, from beginning to end. But they are also co-equal in power, authority, and majesty. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all are equal in their power, authority, and majesty. We see this in, in Matthew 28 when Jesus himself, he, he tells the disciples to go out and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We see that they are co-equal. Jesus says they are all worthy of the same Name, Father, Son, and Spirit. However, they are distinct. A difficulty when we're addressing the Trinity is either to, under, to understand their difference or to understand their connection, their oneness. It's easy to say that, okay, that's God who is sometimes Father, sometimes Son, sometimes Spirit, but that's not true. But then it's also, that, that would be making them completely different, not distinct. Or the, the difficulty is seeing their distinction and their relationship. But their distinction is like this. God, is, is, God the Father is the great orchestrator. God loves the Son by revealing his plan to the Son. The Son loves the Father by obeying the Father's plan. Jesus, the Son, is forever the sent one of the Father. Then the Son loves the Spirit by sending the Spirit, and we're told that the Spirit loves the Son by giving all glory to the Son. And we're told, Jesus says, that anyone who loves me loves the Father. So we see this distinct in roles. God sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, and they are all this perfect Trinitarian union of love. All equal in power, majesty, and authority, 
all eternal, distinct in roles, three gods, nope, three persons, one God. One God, three persons. Now that I laid that foundation, it is important for us to understand this because when, we, when the Spirit is poured out, God is not unleashing some sort of force or power, but God is releasing himself. The, the, the Spirit is not an it, but a person, an equal person in the Trinity. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the presence of God himself. As I walked past uh, Pete Denham today, as I, as I walked in here, uh, Pete said, hey, you smell kind of good. And I took that as a great compliment. And just recently, a couple months ago, Julianne, uh, she, she told me, I think she, what she said was, you don't smell bad. You just don't smell like anything. <laughs> and she said, I would really like if you had a scent. And so I got cologne. I have this. It's kind of cool. It's like solid cologne, and I just kind of, whatever, I, I put it on my body, and now I have a scent. So Pete told me, hey, you smell nice. I was like, yeah, my, my wife told me she, she wanted me to have a scent. And then he was like, well, I like your scent. It's important to understand that the Holy Spirit is not the scent of God. He is God. And so as we look now at the, the pouring of the Holy Spirit and the, the power of the Holy Spirit, it is important for us to understand that the Holy Spirit is God empowering his people to do things that they could not otherwise do on their own for the glory of God himself. So we're going we're gonna to break the, the rest of this teaching up into three parts. We're going to talk about the promise of the Spirit, we're going to talk about the pouring of the Spirit, and we're going to talk about the presence of the Spirit, and then we're going to close. Does that sound good? Yeah? All right, let's do it. Let's talk about the presence of the Spirit. Like I said, the Holy Spirit is co-eternal with God. In the very beginning, the Spirit of God is hovering over the deep, and it's been a part of God's plan for as long as there has been a redemption plan that the, the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all people. In Isaiah, we're told, I'm about to read a ton of scripture. Is that okay? Let's, let's do it. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, and the Spirit, spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. So this is a prophecy that the Spirit of God will come upon Jesus. Isaiah 32. Until the Spirit is poured out on us, from high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. So the Spirit of God is prophesied to be poured out upon us from on high. In Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you, new creation. I will remove you from your heart, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to my laws. The, the prophetic word says that we will be filled with the Spirit. In Joel 2, it says this, And afterwards I will pour my Spirit out upon 
all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. It's a a prophetic word that says the spirit of God will pour out onto all people. In John 14, Jesus says this, but the advocate or the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. You heard me say that I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus is saying it is good for him to to ascend into heaven, because when he does, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all people just as Joel prophesied. The Spirit of God has been present since before the foundation of the world and over and over again the word prophesies proclaiming the day when the Spirit of God or God's empowering presence will be poured out upon men and women and enable them to accomplish God's work. The Holy Spirit is sent for us, enabling us to do the work that God has called us to do. The Spirit of God is what brings, recreates us. We're new creation by God's Spirit, and we are enabled to fulfill the commission that Jesus has given us. So let's look now at the pouring of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2. Is this all making sense? It's good? You guys having a good time? Okay. All right. Acts 2. Remember the section that we read in Acts 1? Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. In Acts chapter 2, it happens. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the, the, the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where the disciples were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And each of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So here the Spirit of God is poured out upon the disciples. All of those prophecies from the Old Testament, it is finally here, it is finally happening. What Jesus told them would happen now has happened. God has sent his Holy Spirit down upon people to do what it said at the very end, to enable them, to enable them to do things that they could not do on their own. And just as as Joel prophesied that the Spirit of God will be poured out upon all men, that we too have been given the opportunity for the Spirit of God, God's empowering presence, the third person of the Trinity, to be poured out upon us and to enable us to do what we could not otherwise do on our own. The Spirit of God is available to anyone. But now let's look at 
at this story, let's ask a couple questions. First, when was the Spirit poured out? So the Spirit was poured out upon the disciples, but when was the Spirit poured out? It's important to note that the Spirit of God was poured out after the disciples, the people had already believed in Jesus. The Spirit of God is poured out after they had already believed in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, he rose again, and he appeared to them, and they believed. And after their belief, the Spirit of God came while they were waiting for the Spirit. It's important to note that because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit coming upon the believer in scriptures is, is a different kind of confession than placing faith in Jesus. We believe that the Holy Spirit works in, in three ways, three different kind of ways. The Holy Spirit works around the Holy Spirit works within, and the Holy Spirit works upon. The Holy Spirit works around as the, the presence of God is everywhere, and the Spirit draws people to Jesus. For, for many of you, if you think back to your story of coming to Jesus, you can look back, and even before you believed in Jesus, you could probably find God working around you. As God was placing godly people into your life who, who invited you to church or prayed with you, or maybe it was a parent or a grandparent that influenced you to place faith in Jesus, we see that the Holy Spirit is working around and when we place faith in Jesus, we're told that the Spirit of God fills us within us, that, that God is now living inside of us and transforming us from the inside out. But then we see a different and distinct relationship to the Holy Spirit after when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the disciples. We really see this illustrated in Acts chapter 19. The disciples come to a home of believers, of Christians, people who, who believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. And, and the, the disciples ask a question, have, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they respond with an interesting answer. We have not yet heard that there even is a Holy Spirit. And in that moment, the disciples, they pray and they invite the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And the disciples are enabled to do things that they couldn't have done before. We see that it is a different and distinct relationship with the Holy Spirit after faith in Jesus. So when was the Spirit poured out? After faith in Jesus. You can believe in Jesus, but you and still not receive the Spirit upon you. It is separate from belief as the Spirit comes within you because as the Spirit comes upon you, it enables you to do things you could not otherwise do. Secondly, who was the Spirit poured out upon? Those who believed. Now, the Holy Spirit has been present in the story of Scripture from the very beginning, like I've said, and we've actually seen the Holy Spirit come upon individuals all throughout the Old Testament. We see the Spirit of God come upon Moses. We see the Spirit of God come upon Samuel. 
uh, or Samson, excuse me, see the Spirit of God come upon Saul and David and over and over again upon the prophets. It's a common phrase to read uh, in the prophets, and they say, listen, O Israel, the Spirit of God is upon me, and they begin to speak the word. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God will come upon an individual for a period of time, And then there's stories where the Spirit of God actually departs from the person. Very very, um, kind of dramatically in the story of Saul. As Saul slips up and he messes up, he's the king of Israel. And then we're told that the Spirit of God left Saul. Also with Samson. Samson was trying to do something by his own strength. And we're told that he did not know that the Spirit of God had departed from him. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon individuals for a period of time and left. But Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, he says, If if you are evil and know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Another translation says, to anyone who asks. That the Holy Spirit is available to come upon and to empower individuals to do things that they could not otherwise do on their own for the glory of God and the Spirit of God is available to anyone who believes in Jesus and simply asks for his presence. You don't need to do anything to try to convince him. You don't need to be any special kind of person, but anyone who believes in Jesus and asks, we're told that the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon them. Now, third question to ask, why was the Spirit poured out? And I've said this over and over again, and I'm going to keep saying it. The Spirit of God comes upon the believer to empower them to do things that they cannot do on their own. So now let's look at the presence of the Spirit, the enabling power of the presence of of God. Jesus would give the Spirit of God kind of two nicknames. He would say the Helper, the Holy Spirit, and then he would just simply call the Holy Spirit peace. He says, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, I I am sending to you, and then he says, peace I leave with you, my peace. In the presence of God, the, the Spirit brings, we're told, the Spirit brings freedom, and the Spirit brings joy. The Spirit is peace incarnate, and the Spirit empowers us and transforms us from the inside out. As you read through the the remainder of the Scriptures, we're in the book of Acts right now. After the book of Acts, we enter into a section of Scripture that is called the Epistles, And the epistles are simply followers of Jesus, the apostles, who are filled with the Holy Spirit to further explain what Jesus himself taught. So Jesus would say, love your neighbor as yourself. And in the epistles, we see more on how to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus would say, on this, I build my church. In the epistles, we see that how to be a church, what the church looks like, how the church should operate. Uh, Jesus would tell us to, to, to marry, that marriage is between a man and a woman. And in the epistles, we see further how to, 
how to live in a marital relationship, how to honor our father and mother and all of those things. The epistles are very simply the, the disciples or the apostles filled with the Spirit to further explain what Jesus himself taught. But the writers of the epistles are not Jesus. They are people who are empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the, the people who, who wrote the scriptures have been radically transformed by the power of God. Paul, who would write most of the New Testament, he, he was a religious zealot who actually purchased or persecuted the church. We're told that Saul, uh, who later would be called Paul, was actually consenting to the death of one of Jesus' early followers, Stephen. Saul would walk around angry and persecuting believers. Peter, in, in the gospel story, we see that Peter consistently is kind of putting his foot in his mouth and saying dumb things. On one occasion, he says something to Jesus, and Jesus literally says, be quiet, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Super heavy. James, one of the writers in the New Testament, he's the half-brother of Jesus who did not believe in Jesus until after he ascended. It's crazy. And then John, who would, who would write in, in uh, the, the, one of the greatest uh, books on Jesus, the, the Gospel of John. He would write the re revelation of, of Jesus at the end, which we'll talk about next week. And he was just some random fisherman. It's crazy. And, and reading through the, the epistles, it's, it's these people who have been empowered by the Spirit of God. How does a hate-filled and aggressive religious person become a, a person who writes one of the most important words on love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Paul, it's, it's the presence of the Spirit. How does a man who Jesus, in response to something he said, say, get behind me, Satan, preach a message where 3,000 people come to Christ through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? How does some random fisherman from a little town of, in Israel write the most profound book on the second coming of Christ and the most detailed book of Jesus' life on earth through the empowering of the Holy Spirit? How does Jesus' half-brother James, who rejected him while Jesus was alive, write a book encouraging Christians not to reject Jesus through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? How does a person that's awkward and weird like me have any level of boldness to come up in front of you guys and to preach the gospel? It's the, it's the presence of the Spirit. The Spirit of God transforms individuals to be people that they cannot be on their own. The, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life will, will empower you to overcome situations that you can't on your own. The presence of the Holy Spirit transforms us from the inside out. I know because God's done it to me. The Holy Spirit has transformed me. Now, how does an overwhelmed and anxious person live a life of peace? How does someone who's plagued with depression or loneliness or lack of direction live a life of joy and satis satisfaction? 
How does someone who, who would rather keep to themselves live as the salt and the light in their world, telling people of Jesus and demonstrating his love in their world themselves? It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I think so often we, we look at our life and we see all the things that we cannot do. I, I, I can't overcome this temptation. I can't overcome these emotions or these feelings. I can't be that kind of person who, who, who tells other people about Jesus. I can't be that kind of person who, who forgives other people when they do something wrong. I can't be that kind of person who doesn't respond angrily. I can't be that person who's, who's patient. I can't be that person who, who cares for other people. And, and it's good to recognize that because you can't on your own. You need the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is promised to empower and strengthen those who can't so that they can by the power of God. Paul would write in one of his letters that he is thankful for his own weakness because in his weakness, the strength of Christ is shown. And maybe you, in your situation, you recognize a weakness. I always give in to this temptation. I always respond this way. I always feel like this. I, I, always, I always judge people in this way. And you see it and you say, I just can't do it. In your weakness, the strength of Christ is made known. Maybe God is revealing an area to you that you are to surrender to God and ask the Spirit to empower you to do something that you can't on your own. 